welcome to the latest edition of IIEA Insights with me, Dan O'Brien. With so much in flux in the world uh, at the moment, the possibility of a new state coming into existence in Ireland's immediate neighbourhood is something that I personally may not have given the attention it deserves in recent years. Regardless of how one assesses the probability of Scotland becoming a sovereign state in the years ahead, the probability is certainly high enough for an Irish international affairs think tank to, well, think about the issues on a regular basis. To do that today, it's a pleasure to welcome Stuart MacDonald of the Scottish Nationalist Party, who is Westminster MP, representing the constituency of Glasgow South. And he will also shortly be publishing a paper entitled, Think Like a State, Act Like a State. You're very welcome to the IIB, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Stuart is also a columnist on The Scotsman. It was one of those newspaper columns back in January, which triggered this invitation to which he has so kindly agreed to take up. In that piece, he wrote about the need to bring pro-Union Scots on board if independence were to happen. And perhaps we can come back to the politics of it all later, Stuart. But we might kick off the discussion with uh, a look at what an independent Scotland's place in the world might look like and its relations with its neighbours. So uh, thanks again for joining us, Stuart. And maybe you might give us an overview of Scotland as, as an independent state. Is there another country that you, you might have a look at, look on as a model for an independent Scotland? Um, what are the sort of alliances that you see as being vital for an independent Scotland? Well, thanks again uh, for agreeing to have me here, Dan, uh, this afternoon. It's a great pleasure to join you and join your, your members. I'm a huge admirer of the work of the think tank. Um, I think there are many models that we can uh, perhaps choose to learn lessons from and emulate uh, from your own native Ireland uh, right over to our Nordic and Scandinavian uh, neighbours and our Baltic uh, neighbours as well. But I think the the anchor for me is that Scotland is a North Atlantic neighbour. We're a North Atlantic country uh, and our interests, therefore, are, are firmly aligned in reflecting that and also being a European country as well. I don't want to relitigate the entire issue of Brexit, but I think the, the way that the geopolitical winds are currently blowing uh, with the, the kind of big power players uh, becoming arguably more, more protectionist, uh, whether that's the US, whether it's the EU, whether it's China, you know, Britain is kind of being caught in the middle here uh, with, with few cards to play. So I think the lesson for me there well, firstly, in, in terms of what's in Britain's interest, it would be to certainly rejoin the EU, but I'm realistic about the prospects of that happening. So clearly a close relationship with the single market and the customs union are in its immediate interests. But as far as Scotland's interests are concerned, I think there's no question that we would want to be uh, a, a member of and an active member at that of the two twin pillars of uh, security, both physical security and economic security and prosperity, which for me are the European Union and NATO. Uh, I think that makes sense, not, ju not just because of where we are in the map, but I think that makes sense in terms of our interests and, you know, really kind of enhancing our ability to pursue our interests uh, around the world uh, and absolutely anchor us in the Northern European mainstream. So there's much to learn for sure 
uh, from countries like Ireland, from countries like Denmark uh, and elsewhere. Uh, but I think we've we've still got a bit of thinking to do as to how we we get to that and how we achieve that. So I, I get the strong sense that you, you mentioned about the EU and NATO, that, that, that an independent Scotland would very much view itself as, as being uh, an actor in the multilateral framework and, and, and want to be in all of those international organizations, ones you didn't mention, obviously the UN, World Trade Organization, that, that you, it would be join everything uh, would, might, might be the, the way you, you proceed. Yes, absolutely. I think that, you know, although it's, it's a, I've always believed that an independent Scotland would want to be an active part of those multilateral bodies. But I think certainly the past year here in Europe alone has shown the value of being part of those bodies and the value of, of, of taking them seriously. But, you know, there's another there's another interest, there's another relationship rather that we will always have to get right as well. And that is our relationship with, with the rest of the UK. It will be our single most important bilateral uh, relationship. And in many ways will underpin, you know, getting that right will underpin our ability to have uh, successes domestically and successful relationships uh, elsewhere into the future too. So I think absolutely Scotland wants to be part of the, of the European mainstream, of the international mainstream. Uh, that means, you know, as well as exploiting the opportunities that become available, it means also taking the burden and taking the responsibilities of, of membership of bodies like the EU, like NATO, like the OSCE seriously. I, I really don't see any realistic or attractive alternative uh, for an independent Scotland should it become independent. And, and picking up on the point that, that, that you made about your, your biggest still, even after independence, your most important bilateral relationship would be with, with London, given, given the scale of the connections. Um, how would you, what, what sort of learnings do you think that there has been within your party in Scotland more generally about how Britain exited from the European Union? Uh, are there things that you have learned from that in terms of your exit from your union, if that were to happen? Yes, absolutely. And 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 it was actually part of, I think I mentioned it, Dan, in the article that you mentioned uh, in The Scotsman from back in January, you know, the, the one thing we must not do is approach independence with the same kind of attitude that Theresa May approached Brexit, which was a kind of winner takes all uh, approach to the to a very narrow victory and a very extreme uh, version of constitutional reform that was to be foisted on the rest of the country. And uh, so I think that the lesson for me is that we need to ensure, and we can start this now, ensure that we create the space to to allow losers consent uh, when Scotland votes for its independence. Uh, and I think you know there's a lot we can do now around tone, around language, but also, around policy and I think the although I, I'm 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 realistic that most people aren't sitting around thinking in great detail about about foreign uh, and security policy but I think for example uh, one of the ideas I've been sketching out is around a good neighbor doctrine to kind of be a, a good framework for our relations with our UK who many people in Scotland 
will not just have a, a still have a great affinity for because of our, our shared history, family relations and all the rest of it, but will have an economic interest in us having stable relations as well. It's it's not in anyone's interest for those relations to be anything other than good, constructive and positive. So I think the lesson from, from Theresa May is, yes, understand your strengths. Yes, understand, understand your weaknesses. Um, but I think through it all, playing in good faith, understanding that you need to keep as many people uh, in Scotland on board as possible, including those who didn't vote for the constitutional change that you're you're seeking to implement after a vote for independence. So, so important. You know, I remember when I went down to London the weekend of the Brexit vote back in 2016, and there was a young woman standing in Parliament Square she had the EU flag kind of wrapped around her and she was holding a handmade sign that said, I want my country back. And it was so clever because it's a phrase that's so often associated with the far right and people like Nigel Farage. And here was here was this young woman lamenting the loss um, that, that she felt so deeply. And we have to be cognizant of the fact that there will be people who feel that when Scotland becomes independent. So I think a good neighbour doctrine, good neighbour framework, managing the political tone now, not waiting until till the result itself, will be so, so important uh, for how we move forward. For me, that's one of the biggest political lessons of Brexit and how you handle that type of constitutional change. And it's interesting because I suppose here with, with, with talk of um, a United Ireland's there has been, you know, considerable debate and discussion in recent times about the willingness of those of us in the South to make changes to accommodate um, the unionist tradition. Uh, and it does appear from opinion polls that there is not a very strong desire uh, amongst the uh, population of the South to to adjust much. I, I'm wondering, in terms of the, from from the Scottish Nationalist Party in particular, what sort of accommodations or concessions, if you will, maybe it's the wrong word, but, you know, what what sort of measures, you know, for example, would you would you would you advocate the, the maintenance of the monarchy, um, uh, you know, other sort of things that maybe those who hold their Britishness before their Scottishness, what, what sort of things do you have in mind? Or are you cautious about making commitments now? Uh, about that, would you prefer, is that is the policy to sort of wait till closer to the time before you make those concessions? No, I mean, the 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 social union, uh, as, as it's been coined, I, I think will continue and we have to show goodwill and good faith to ensure that that continues. Uh, you know, although what I'm seeking is, is, is political independence, uh, I desire nothing but the closest possible relationship uh, with our neighbours south of the border. Obviously, that will change with independence. But my uh, my belief is that if we can approach it in the right way, understanding our own interests and values, and it's in our own interest to have as stable and cooperative and positive relations with the rest of the United Kingdom as possible, then that is absolutely what we should pursue. I mean, you mentioned the monarchy as as one example, uh, an institutional example, perhaps, and I detect there's a bit of a shift in Scotland as far as that particular institution is concerned after the death of 
of the late Queen, who was held in such high regard by people in Scotland. But I think with the arrival of a new king, the upcoming coronation, that debate may get revisited. I don't feel that strongly about it. I have to be, I have to be completely honest. But I think the important thing is to set out where we think we can cooperate in key areas. And as a former defence spokesperson for my party, defence and security cooperation is one, you know, just as I've always believed that the UK should seek a comprehensive defence and security treaty with the European Union, so too would it be in Edinburgh's interest to seek the same with London post-independence. Uh, and I think there, you know, that that is something that is not only in our interests, it's in our UK's interest, it would be in Ireland's interest as a close neighbour, I'm sure as well. But we should we should seek out many other ways uh, to give birth to to that good neighborhood policy. And these things don't just happen, right? They need work. They need creativity. They need goodwill. They need resource. Uh, and I think if we can start setting that out it's in our political interest, I believe, to start setting out how that would be approached now ahead of any vote in the future, because I think that does help with, with some of those who may not like independence, but if the country votes for it, you still want them to feel that they have a part to play in this new enterprise. So I, I see it as a win-win, Dan, uh, from my perspective, not to wait or, or to try and cloud that, that position in secrecy, but actually to own it very enthusiastically and go out there and generate a discussion. And although you mentioned the the debate that's going on in Ireland uh, about how the South could accommodate uh, a united Ireland. You know, I, I've been very struck when I was last in, in Dublin last year for the big conference that took place in the Three Arena uh, in Dublin. And I was I, I was there just to watch. I wasn't taking part at all. I was very much in listening mode. And the thing that struck me actually and surprised me was when your current Taoiseach uh, went onto the stage and started to talk about things like shared institutions and the degree of devolution uh, in certain areas, that that seems to get a bit of a, a, a mildly hostile response from from some in the crowd. But I, but it's not for me to tell Ireland how to have that debate. Far from it. But I think that sort of thinking is what attracts me most. So I, I suppose one of the lessons from Brexit, and I think most pro-Brexit people would privately admit that they were not as prepared for the issues as as uh, as they should have been. It certainly strikes me that an independent Scotland would need to see a draft written constitution before you were, again, far be it for me to say what you folks should do, but, but would a draft written constitution, to the best of my memory, there was no uh, draft constitution put on the table at the time of the last referendum, would a constitution um, letting people know very clearly this is what the new the architecture of the new state will look like. Uh, would that help? And are there, is there any discussion around that uh, within your party? Yeah, there's a lot of discussion around exactly that, Dan. A, a draft a constitution to to really kind of get that get that conversation going, and it's something that it's something that those who support independence already really really like to talk about. I guess my concern is, well, how do we broaden that out to include people who are undecided voters or or even those who who don't support independence, but can see that it, it may well actually come about at some point in the next few years. 
So I think, you know, what we did in 2014, if you recall, was we produced a, a white paper that you could you could hold a taxi door open with. It was about, I think it was about 900 pages long. Uh, and we went into enormous detail on all kinds of stuff, you know, what the international dialing code would be, how much would a first class stamp be, would people still get to see Eurovision, uh, all this stuff, as well, as well as a whole host of things that were, were much more serious, like currency and pensions and, and, and much else. So I, I think we've got nothing to fear from kind of talking about the architecture of the new state and what that means for people in Scotland and its interactions with the world. But I think one of the lessons I would take from the last referendum is not to get too bogged down on some of the detail of that. Um, one of the things that certainly didn't get discussed in the last referendum was the prospect of a border between Scotland and England. And clearly the whole Brexit saga and the backstop protocol saga on this island has made it absolutely clear that a Scotland within the EU uh, would have an external, an EU external frontier with, with uh, England and that some border infrastructure would, would be necessary. How is that issue playing out now and how much do you think it might play out in any discussion of independence, particularly in, in border in a border region, it's going to be enormously important, uh, especially to those living in the south of Scotland and obviously those in the north of England. But it's going to be especially important to businesses all over Scotland uh, who pass through whose goods and services will pass through that border. Um, we've been watching with interest how the Windsor Framework Agreement has come about. I think we'll we'll be digesting the lessons on that uh, very closely. It's, it's not it's not a brief I uh, have have uh, control over, but absolutely, you know, I've always felt this isn't something we should fear, uh, and it's it's one of those things that our unionist opponents have always sought to use as a scarce story because borders, by definition, don't sound like a good thing. But I think going back to my point about the uh, kind of good neighbourhood doctrine to underpin our relations with the rest of the UK, if you can approach that in such a fashion that 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 sees, OK, we need a border that is managed, that is managed between two neighbours who are, it, you know, where that border being managed well is in both of our interests, then I don't think we need to have anything to fear in that. You know, it's often, I, I forget the the... I forget who the quote originates from, but the quote, good fences make good neighbours. Uh, and, I, and I think there's something in that for us all to learn. You know, I want to see us have as, as free and relaxed movement of people and goods as possible. But I'm also realistic that we'll need to have some kind of managed cooperation and infrastructure. So I don't think that's something to fear, but I think it will be a much more prominent issue next time round, not least given your own experience uh, in Ireland post-Brexit. And, and of course, the issue that did get a lot of attention was the, the currency. Um, being, a, being a member of the, of the EU involves a, a commitment to, to joining the euro, um, but clearly becoming in, independent and changing currency at the same time, uh, a lot of people might be put off by the scale of that sort of change. How has the debate around the currency evolved over time, or has it not really been resolved at all? Yeah, again, it's one of these things that has it's been quite hotly uh, discussed within the SNP and the broader pro-independence movement quite 
quite heavily, actually, since the last referendum. Uh, I see no problem personally uh, with not just the commitment to joining the euro, but ending up uh, there at some point. I can already hear press officers in my party going crazy at me for saying that out loud. But I, I think, again, a mature discussion on currency with the population is not something we need to fear. It's the kind of thing that can be managed with goodwill. And, you know, I remember, I, I think I'm right in saying, Dan, it was in a letter to the Times, Sir Nicholas McPherson, who was permanent secretary at the Treasury at the time of the 2014 referendum, it came out and said, well, we said all this stuff on sharing the pound, but of course we would have managed this if there had been a vote for independence because it's in everyone's interest to manage this properly. So I think that in itself has taken some of the sting uh, out of this discussion, uh, whilst you know the, the kind of broader independence movement and the SNP needs to work out, okay, well, what actually are we proposing? What What is in our economic interest? But again, I don't think that's a debate that we need to fear, but it is one that we absolutely must get right and be able to go into the next referendum with a position that we can convey with some considerable confidence, because that was undoubtedly one of the areas where the public just weren't convinced by the by the position that we had last time, even though in the end it was obvious that the position was was fundamentally sound. And another issue that I, if I recall, I, I, the, the, the pro-independence side had, had a difficulty with was there was there was a question, particularly coming from Madrid, being cautious about creating the precedent with Catalonia, that there was some opposition to the idea of Scotland joining as an independent uh, member state. And that sort of put, put a question mark over the automaticity of, of Spain becoming an EU member state, or of Scotland becoming an EU member state, excuse me. How has that question evolved and uh, what sort of relations do you have with, with Spain and have you, has that position softened somewhat? So I, I, I've always felt that the Madrid question vis-a-vis -vis Scotland has been, has been massively over-egged. You know, I, I understand entirely uh, why Madrid may have uh, you know, certain reservations around this. But what has always been clear from, from Madrid, from officials and from kind of back channel conversations that have taken place, so long as Scotland resolves this issue in an entirely legal, constitutional and democratic fashion, then that result will be honoured in London. And if it's honoured in London, it will be honoured in Madrid, Paris, Berlin, Dublin, Washington, and everywhere else. Uh, you know, I published a I published a paper fairly recently, just last month actually, on on how how we how we resolve this issue of the process by which Scotland becomes independent, because we've had a bit of a debate within our party about the fact that the UK government is refusing the necessary transfer of power for a legal referendum in the same way that happened in 2014. And there's been a debate about are there other ways to achieve independence? Uh, I've always held that what we did in 2014 is the gold standard. It's the gold standard for a reason. And we shouldn't demur from that. If we demur at all from a legal, constitutional, democratic fashion, then it won't just be Madrid objecting to recognition. It'll be a whole host of capitals. Not least, by the way, the Scottish people. I don't think the Scottish people would accept any process that wasn't underpinned in democracy, law and constitutionalism.
Okay, good. That's clear. You, you mentioned earlier on um, interest and values. And it, it would certainly strike me that Scotland, independent Scotland, would have very similar interests to other small North Atlantic uh, countries. Uh, one area, though, might values, I suppose different countries have different values. I'm thinking in particular around NATO, that uh, neutrality has become uh, you know, a deeply held value, I, I would say, for many people in, in the Republic here. But very different history and the role of the military in, in Scotland uh, is very different. Um, you know, you, you did mention at the beginning that NATO membership would also be uh, something you'd seek. Maybe for, for an Irish audience in particular, you might just tease out a bit how your party and, and your country views that, um, that connection with NATO, views its role in military alliances, which I think is a, is a value that would be very different from here for most people. Yeah, so again, the, the clue's in the name, right? North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and we're a North Atlantic country. We're the most northerly non-Arctic nation. Uh, and I think that it would be in our interest to be part of a, a, a burden-sharing defense alliance that concerns itself with our part of the world. Uh, and we will obviously have particular responsibilities and interests around, for example, the Greenland-Iceland-UK gap. Uh, I think that Scotland as a country it has a long and, and proud martial history. Uh, I think that, you know, Anything you put to the Scottish people in terms of independence has to be underpinned with a commitment, a serious commitment to defence. I think the past 12 months vis-a-vis -vis Russia's aggression in Ukraine have shown the importance of defensive alliances and the defensive alliance that is NATO, but also the work increasingly around uh, defence and security affairs of the European Union. I've always called them the twin pillars of European security. And at the minute, Scotland is only in one. Uh, we're actually more safe, independent in both. And that requires you to, to share in that burden. So that means you have to obviously meet your, your commitments in terms of financial resources. You have to, you have to analyse your threat picture and... Uh, accumulate the correct capabilities, not just to meet your national threat picture, but to ensure you can contribute properly to NATO. Uh, I think in the case of a small country like Scotland, uh, I, I, I can learn lessons from countries such as Denmark or Estonia, for example, who understand the need to bring something uh, unique, a kind of unique selling point uh, or a unique capability to an alliance like NATO. So, you know, what we can't bring in mass, which is what the Americans uh, provide, we can seek to bring in terms of a unique contribution. And I've explored what that could be, perhaps around something like military medicine, for example. But Scotland has options. So I've always felt that you have to have a serious defence posture. And in my view, it's only a serious defence posture if it includes Scotland being a member of NATO. And I think that chimes with the public. NATO membership uh, enjoys something like 78% approval uh, in Scotland. So our debate is very different uh, to, to your debate in Ireland. Uh, and again, it's a debate I follow, I follow quite closely. Um, central to, the, to NATO is, of course, the United States. 
Um, we would like to think that we have the real special relationship with uh, with with Washington, and to some extent, that there, there's a lot of truth in that. It is a it is a a, a very special relationship. Um, given that so many Americans have have Scots Irish background, is is there a possibility that that Scotland might be a rival for um, for Washington's attention? Uh, for Ireland in that sense, and, and more seriously, in, in terms of building up a, a bilateral relationship with the United States. Um, talk a bit about that, maybe any groundwork that, that's, been, that's been put in place. Well, I mean, firstly, let me just say your, your diplomatic uh, core and the effort that you put into that relationship with Washington is quite something. Having seen the Irish operation on Capitol Hill, uh, I, I admire it with intense jealousy. So far from being a rival, I hope you would help us, uh, your your Celtic cousins, uh, in, in helping us establish that relationship. But yeah, of course, the, the US relationship would be of, of enormous importance uh, for us. I, I think that's partly why getting the relationship with London early will be so crucial as well. It's a fellow permanent member of the Security Council. It's a fellow Five Eyes country. Um, I, I, I think that uh, in terms of the in terms of the groundwork that has been done, obviously the, there's the kind of official Scottish government uh, footprint in Washington. Uh, I, I think there's also a small office in Canada as well, actually. Uh, and then there's the more political outreach, and political outreach has been uh, intense. I did a lot of it myself with, when I was a front bench spokesperson. And I think, again, going back to the defence and security issue, our first big test as a security actor is going to be how we handle the the issue of nuclear weapons being right. based in in Scotland. Obviously, we my party has has a long and established history of being anti nuclear weapons, uh, and having looked at this in some detail, I don't think that that issue needs to be any more needs to be any more sticky than it than it may otherwise first appear. I think that if we start from the our starting point is what is in our interest, what is in London's interest. I don't believe it's in London's interest to have uh, its sovereign capability stationed permanently within the territory of a, a foreign state, no matter how close and neighbourly and friendly that state might be. So I think if we can have a process of removal that is managed, that is fundamentally underpinned with a commitment to safety, security, to the, to the international rules-based system, then you can have a removal process that respects everyone's interests, respects everyone's values, and ultimately achieves what I think both capitals will want to achieve, which is those weapons ultimately not being hosted in Scotland. And the US will have an enormous interest in that. Uh, undoubtedly, they will have a role to play uh, in, in allowing that to happen, as will other uh, European and, and NATO member states as well. So I think understanding what the US will be looking for, particularly in the early days, and having respect for that as well, is going to be really, really important, not just to establishing a relationship with the US, but I think establishing a reputation more broadly uh, in Europe and more further afield. Let's go from, from the sort of hardest of security matters to the eco economics of it all. One of the things that's changed a lot in the decade, almost a decade since the, the referendum, is um, fossil fuels, uh, oil, gas, uh, the green transition. The debate really has transformed over the past 10 years. 
Um, how important or much less important is North Sea fossil fuel uh, for the future of, United, of an independent Scotland? And how do you think that's going to play out in, in, in how you frame the, the argument for independence? I think energy is going to be enormous in the next independence debate. And, you know, obviously we've we've done well the uk has done very well i would argue rather than scotland from from our, our oil potential uh, continues to do so those jobs in the north sea are of high value and managing away from fossil fuel extraction to a more renewable based uh, energy architecture is of enormous importance not just for our, our own environmental contribution, but important for our economy as well. So it's it's going to be absolutely uh, huge, uh, really important that we get this right. I'm pleased to see our, our former leader, Ian Blackford, uh, who was our former leader at Westminster, is currently doing some work around a green industrial strategy for independence. And again, I think that is going to be so fundamental to the economic case that we put to that we put to people in Scotland to try and convince them that independence will deliver a better and a greener future. So I think where oil historically has played a really, really important part in the arguments for independence and the economic case for independence, I think any modern refreshed and renewed case has to have a much more stronger reliance and underpinning around achieving net zero uh, and, a, and a clean uh, environmental future relying less on the fossil fuels that are in the ground. And, you know, I, I, I certainly think that in many countries there is a difference between what people who sort of think about the risks of climate change, uh, how, how they view the urgency of the matter, and public opinion more generally, that whilst being in favour of a green transition, when it means carbon taxes, when it means um, paying more for many different things, uh, that, that there's there's a different view there. So you know, is 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 that a a split in Scotland that could be particularly big given your past dependence on on fossil fuels? I don't think so, but equally, I'm not. Um, you know, I, I'm not. I'm not overly relaxed about that. I mean, I, th I think that the, the general people understand quite well that the need to move to a, a cleaner, greener future. And they understand that sometimes the impact of that does appear in their own bank accounts. And I think, in, again, to return to what we've seen in Ukraine over the past 12 months, people understand understand that even more. Where What I think is incumbent on political parties, governments, policymakers is to not just explain that to the public, but ensure that our, our public policy architecture and, and the use of all of the financial levers that, that governments have support people as much as possible in that transition. You know, in, in after the last Holyrood election, we brought the Scottish Green Party into government with a cooperation agreement uh, in Edinburgh. So they're, they're part of the government. They have two ministers in our government. And that cooperation agreement Ha, it enjoys considerable public confidence uh, amongst voters in Scotland. Sure, there's a whole bunch of people who don't like it and think that the transition is going too fast. Personally, I think we've got the transition just about right, and all of the public polling would suggest that people that people agree with that. But I think 
rather perversely, what the war in Ukraine, what Russia's war in Ukraine has given us an opportunity uh, to do is to have that comprehensive, full and frank discussion with the public about why it's really important that we have this transition. We do it in an orderly, managed way, but in a way that also understands the urgency of the moment that we find ourselves in. You know, we, I, I'm desperate to get, for example, our migration debate uh, away from people in small boats who are arriving here desperately and need help and on to a much, much bigger, comprehensive and more serious footing, which is about, OK, how is how is climate change a threat to civilization? And how does that present itself here in this country? And what do we need to do to better manage that? I think that's much more in tune with where most people are at. And I actually think it's what the moment itself demands too. So I think the public by and large are on board. I think we can keep them on board, but we've still got a, a way to go. But but you know, we need to we we need to work at that. We can't just assume that the public will always be on board. That definitely needs work. Um, does the issue of free movement by rejoining the single market, rejoining the EU, is is that something that also needs work? By, by recollection, and please forgive me if I'm wrong, but about one in three SNP voters also voted for Brexit. So there wouldn't be, the, you know, there's some element within your party that, that clearly is not enthused uh, by EU membership, and part of that may, may be to do with uh, immigration. Is that also an issue that, that will involve work, or is there a uh, uh, is that a less divisive issue than it is in south of the border? I think it's certainly less toxic. I mean, opinions on immigration, when you look at public polling, don't differ all that much from, from south of the border. Uh, I think it's 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 less of a priority for many people. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I may be slightly biased. I represent the most pro-EU seat in Glasgow uh, in this. But equally, if you go to rural Perthshire, where previously we would have had many, many seasonal agriculture workers coming to pick Scottish fruit that has, in some cases, is now just rotting in fields. Uh, or you have, uh, if you go to the highlands of Scotland, where you would have had seasonal workers working in our hotels and, and, and restaurants, they can absolutely see the damage uh, that leaving the European Union has done in terms of freedom of movement. But on the immigration issue more broadly, we are we are a we are an unapologetically pro-immigration party. We are unapologetic uh, in terms of being against the most recent policy of Soella Braverman, the Home Secretary. We be we believe that we should be a place of sanctuary to people who are fleeing poverty, war, climate change, but also a place of opportunity and prosperity for people who who do us the 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 honor of choosing to build their lives here. Uh, but yes, we absolutely have to continue to go out and make that political case to the public because you can't just assume uh, that that, there, that that goodwill will always be there, not least when you've got these forces, people like, you know, the, the Farages of this world trying to weaponize uh, public hostility. But I think there's a reason why that has never really taken root in Scotland in the same way. And I think we saw that in the difference of results in the 2016 election. I think you see that with the continued confidence that the SNP, a pro-immigration SNP, uh, enjoys with the public. Uh, and as I say, if you go to outside of Glasgow, if you go to the rural parts of, of Scotland, 
up in the Highlands or even in the south of Scotland, they can see for themselves what not having freedom of movement has meant for their local economies, and it ain't good. So as we come towards the end, uh, maybe just look at the probability of uh, of independence over over the, the the medium term. Opinion polls have not moved decisively towards uh, independence. I think it's fair to say. Um, is is there a reason for that, and is there a possibility that that support for independence has actually hit a ceiling, and that there is no real prospect, certainly in current in the foreseeable future, of of um, of solid support uh, for uh, for for independence emerging? So I think what we've seen is, you know, independence went up over the course of the COVID pandemic. It went as high as 56% uh, or, or maybe even 58%, I can't quite remember, in one poll. But there were a succession of, I think it was more than 10 polls over the pandemic that showed support for independence. And now it's kind of come back down again and it hovers around about 50%, sometimes just over, sometimes just under. Um, and... I mentioned earlier, I published a paper just last month. It's called The Scotland That Can Vote Yes. And part of that paper is about how we grow support for independence, not just how we actually achieve it in terms of the process, but how you grow support for independence. And when I was doing research uh, for that paper, I met with a, a, a well-respected political scientist in Scotland. And I asked uh, that political scientist, you know, where is public opinion now? And how do I budget as a member of the SNP? And he said to me, we are the most polarised part of the United Kingdom, more polarised even than Northern Ireland. And if you take those in Scotland who on the census will say they are British rather than Scottish or British before Scottish, they are more hard in their unionism than the average DUP voter is in Northern Ireland. Now, just... Let, for me, that's quite a thing to, to have to let sink in, right? So when I asked the question, okay, well, I can accept that somebody like that is probably never going to support independence, but how do I get over those, those softer, more curious voters? And I think the case is, the way you do that is twofold. I think firstly, it's through good government. So good devolved government that has good quality public services a government that people feel is on their side. And then secondly, you make an economic case for independence rooted in fairness. So the democracy question for us has always been really important. Uh, you know, things like being dragged out of the European Union against your will, the proroguing of parliament unlawfully, all of these things offend our natural democratic instincts, but they never really moved the dial. Brexit at the time only gave us an additional three points. But if you go back to those closing weeks of the 2014 vote uh, referendum campaign, what was moving the dial was when we started talking about narrowing the gap between the rich and poor, a fairer and better economic system that worked for people. That's what starts to win people over. So I think if you can, when, when I look at where Scotland sits in terms of its economic performance, my constituents' living standards, the public realm, all of these things, we fall way behind our Western European counterparts, not least in Ireland. And Scottish voters, quite correctly, are asking why. So if we can present an economic case that answers that problem and shows people that living standards can be better and more in line with our Western European counterparts, 
and you've got a government that people feel confidence in, you hit the sweet spot and you win. That's what will move the dial on Scottish independence. And I think the reason it's been hovering at around the 50% mark for the past, uh, what would it be, maybe a year or so, is because we haven't managed to hit both of those buttons. Stuart, you've been very generous with your, with your time. We've gone slightly over, so apologies for that. But look, it's all right. um, uh, many thanks. I think we covered an awful lot, uh, and I hope we've uh, helped people formulate their thoughts on, on what, what an independent Scotland might look like and what it might mean for us as well. So with that, uh, thanks everyone for joining. And Stuart, thank you uh, so much for your time and thoughts today. Thank you very much. Thank you.